Mm-hmm. So any great athlete, they'll tell you the champions are made from the neck up in many ways, from how your brain functions from a physiological standpoint to make sure it doesn't have inflammation in it, called neuroinflammation, and most people do in this world, but also your, your thought process that you have, uh, your viewpoint about yourself um, and the world that you live in. So you can, people experience that all the time where I just tell them, have you ever been completely alone and kind of like some of the world is now? Uh, and you've thought about something that's been very stressful for you or the stress that you're in. And can you feel this wave of physiology completely change in your body? And you didn't leave the room. And it happened in a split second. And then you can flip the switch and think of something that was very wonderful or joyous or a thrill in your life that could have happened decades prior. And then this blanket comes over you and you feel completely different. Mm-hmm. That, that was just based on the emotional context of your brain putting this scrapbook together uh, and then you painted a picture, a story for yourself. So you can change the story anytime. That's the most empowering part. And I see people in chronic pain, man. I mean, you don't see me first when you get hurt. You see me when you've been through a lot of stuff and then what's supposed to help you never helped you or it did and it stopped helping you or it made you worse. (laughs) Then you're usually open and receptive to the stuff that I'm going to be going over with you. And, I'll usually never do what somebody else has already done for you because if you needed that, you wouldn't have found me. You would have already been better, (laughs) you know? Uh, So some of the context, honestly, in my world of rehab, um, I tried to bring more of a a playful interaction with people and, and movements to this world of being so serious with what we're doing. And many people thought that I was like, yeah, what kind of doctor is this where you're just having me do these play games? And, but that was just more of the mental thing for them. Um, And then once they started to do it and let this, this guard down as we have as human beings, we're kind of wrapped in this hard shell and they started to feel better and smile and laugh. And the beautiful thing that I've learned when you do playful movement is that you're not focusing on your pain. You're just focusing on the playful movement or the task at hand. Play usually has some underlying, um, it seems arbitrary, but it's not. Play is not arbitrary at all. It's usually very task-oriented driven. You're just not obsessed with the end goal of the task. You're just involved in the moment that you're in. That's what I like about it. You're just, you're in the moment that you're in and you're not really thinking about what just happened and what's coming next. You just are. And that's a big component to healing. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, 
please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Perry Nicholson, the founder of Stop Chasing Pain. And I love that title, right? I've seen so many people get lost in this quest to to kind of identify the very specific mechanical problems with their pain. And so often it just leads them to being stuck in chronic pain. So Perry is an incredible systems thinker. He's a doctor of chiropractic, but his work goes far beyond your usual crack your back type chiropractic. Um, He's a former bodybuilder, an athlete who suffered some serious chronic pain issues that he then went out to try and find. And he started looking at the levels of the nervous system, looking at the level of the emotional system, looking at the level of the lymph. And has a lot of interesting ideas about how these systems interrelate and how we can help human beings function much better, get them playing, get them moving, and create, you know, better human beings. So I was really excited to talk to Perry, and this is my first time ever having a conversation with him, and it went very deep. It got quite emotional as we talked through some of the, the stuff that we've dealt with. Um, so I think, you know, that hopefully that will speak to a lot of you guys. We are going to break this up into two weeks because the, we ended up talking for substantially longer than we normally do on a podcast because there's just so much to share. So I think it's a really rich interview. You guys are going to enjoy it. A little bit of bookkeeping before we get to Perry, though. Um, if you've been thinking about joining us for our online course but couldn't commit to it, we're now offering a weekly subscription rate so that you can take a look at it without making that big upfront commitment. I think this is going to really help people get involved in, you know, with the situation that we currently have where it's quite difficult to train in a lot of the traditional ways most people are used to. I think this is an amazing resource for you guys to get you out into nature. Um, and I think this is actually one of the very safe things that you can do. Uh, we'll probably t- address that at another time. But uh, being outside in the natural world is a relatively quite safe way to train. And I, I think that, that uh, yeah, there's a good resource for you if you guys are interested in that. But that's all from me. So without further ado, Perry Nicholson. Perry, welcome on the program. It's a real pleasure to have you. Um, so I've, I've been following you on Instagram for a while. You know, you're one of those guys who's talking about things that, that are a bit off the beaten path. <laughs> so uh, so kind of like you. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was thinking about that the idea that like you know when I was looking at your work I was like oh there's something really intriguing here but also this guy's just talking in a way that is so far off of what everyone else is talking about it's hard to mm. completely gauge how much to buy in and I imagine that's how a lot of people uh, feel when they first see my stuff it's like okay. yeah because it's kind of weird I mean I was also simultaneously checking out your stuff because mm-hmm. I've heard about the things that you do and uh, you know which we'll get much uh, deeper into. and uh it is a crazy universe thing man and somebody just said do you guys know each other and i'm like no but it'd be cool to and then all of a sudden just bam here we are (laughs) yeah so um so so let's let's just start with your background a little bit right so Mm -hmm. your your brand is stop chasing pain yes which i i think is a wonderful name and i think that thank you very much yeah i kind of came to me the story about that is that i was well, let me kind of start from the beginning. I got in the world of healthcare from getting hurt myself I'm from bodybuilding. And I was doing movement, but it was very repetitive movement, right? And you're just, you're just concerned about aesthetics, that standpoint. And that's okay, right? You just got to realize that it comes with some issues when you do it. 
Um, and it just caught up with me where I got hurt in my lower back. Then I got helped by a chiropractor. I decided to become one a few years later. But I always thought that there was something else missing to the fundamental puzzle. And it ended up, for me, a big discovery of just human movement, right? I was, I was thinking of what's the one thing that we all have in common that we do that we probably don't do enough of or really look at. And that was human movement. And that got me in the work of my first movement mentor and probably the biggest one to this day, Gray Cook, who is a physical therapist that many people listening to your show yeah. might know. And then they just started to relate the stuff that maybe you're hurting at a place in your body because you're not moving well in a place that's outside of the side of pain, which just immediately attracted my attention. And uh, I went to one of his first fundamental workshops and a slide came up that had three words on it in red. It said stop chasing pain and it just kind of hit me like I was, i'm supposed to be here and then it, at that moment time froze and i joke with him to say that's the moment i stopped listening and i did a google search on GoDaddy to see if the domain name was available <laughs> and it was so i snagged it and then i asked him later if i could use it so you know you do it then you ask for forgiveness later kind of thing and he said yeah and it started from there and then the whole premise was uh, you know you treat pain of course right and then, but you don't want to just caught up in, in chasing it, which means just doing the same things to where it hurts or many different things to where it hurts. And that led me to kind of where I am now with movement because I would start trying to move the areas that hurt on people more and trying to get them afraid of not moving. But when you're in pain, you don't want to move because you're scared to move. So I had a novel idea. Let me just have you move the rest of your body a lot that doesn't hurt. Yeah. It's like exploratory movement, which is play, basically. Yeah. And uh, an amazing thing happened. They just started to feel so much better, and their their confidence built up. Their life came back, and uh, it was just something that I never looked back from that moment. Yeah, I think about um, when it comes to pain, I think about the idea of basically I want to feed my nervous system as much information that helps it bring the alarm level down and I also yeah. want to um i want to give the the kinesthetic map as much information that helps it localize where the pain is right because it's easy for the pain signal to spread right it's like oh you injured your back but where right mm -hmm. you know uh you can be in pain you could feel pain in your entire back might not even yeah. be your back right but i found that like by doing little things and trying to edge around where the pain is all of a sudden i can get it to be localized much more tightly yeah, exactly. And what's interesting with the way that pain science is progressing, which is quite fascinating, a current theory that I happen to agree with is that many times you have most of the pain in an area where you don't have a lot, a lot of sensory awareness, proprioceptive awareness, kinesthetic awareness, interoceptive awareness, you name it. I mean, it's, a many, it's so many different types. I just know that your body doesn't have an awareness of an area. And then what was fascinating to me is that they proposed that one of the ways that your body can become more aware of an area that it has lost awareness in is to make it hurt. Mm -hmm. Because then you're always aware of it because it hurts. So it's actually a, uh, a very powerful protective strategy. And then that's what people that need to realize that pain is not a punishment from your body. It's a protective strategy from your body. It doesn't seem like that when you're suffering so much, you get in this, this kind of battle with your body, this hate, hate relationship, because you don't understand why it's doing what it's doing. And that brings in an emotional component to pain, but there's always an emotional component to movement as well. And 
And uh, so it's, it's like a full circle. And if you can become empowered to know, you say you've got an area where your low back hurts, which is a very common injury yeah. for people. You're, you're, you're kind of scared to do anything because I've been there. Mm. But you forget that 99% of the rest of your body is probably pretty damn good. Mm. And, and, but you focus just on the negative. We're kind of hardwired to focus on the bad. Yeah. And it takes work and effort to focus on the positive. But if you can learn that you can move, holy cow, I mean, I can move my legs, I can move my feet, my hands, my arms, my head, my ankles, my shoulders, my hips, and then my back. You know, I don't feel pain when I do that. And then that feeds that system, like you said before, and then you become empowered emotionally and physically to then be able to move. Because sometimes you have pain because of the fear of moving you, you manifest pain because you have a fear of the pain when you move. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are you familiar with uh, Todd Hargrove? Sure. Yeah. Uh, he's a friend of mine. And one thing he wrote in one of his books that I really liked was this idea that, you know, as you're, if you don't use an area, um, the motor map of the area sort of breaks down. Um, and you can imagine it kind of like one of those old medieval maps that wherever wherever the motor map has broken down enough, it's like, here be dragons. Right. Yeah, exactly. Great metaphor. Yeah, it's so true. And so your that anxiety becomes a source of pain in and of itself. Oh, yeah, big time. That's what makes us human beings, the emotional component that comes into, into play. You know, and that's, that's all based in, in neurology and neuroscience, basically. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that I... I gravitated towards movement, but I also became really turned off that we were making movement so complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're in a, a quote unquote corrective exercise environment, rehabilitation environment, and we're trying to get people to get out of pain and we're putting them into some, some movements and to get them to move better, you might say, and we're coaching them slash cueing them, but we're putting so much anxiety on them that they need to do a movement the right way or the wrong way. And I don't believe there is a right way or a wrong way to move by any means. I just believe there's different ways to move. And when you put it in that context, it's much more successful for your brain to feel comfortable moving in many different things, even into areas where it hurts, because you're gonna have pain at some point in your life. But so I tried to get more variation, variability, and variety. The thing that I learned from my, my friend Joanne Elphinston, who talks about the three V's, and then that tied into the stuff that I learned about the brain and how it needs novelty, it needs difference in order to compare A and B together so we can learn the differences between the two. So if you don't give it a lot of differences, how's it gonna understand anything that? changes so if you do i found that if you do the same type of movements all the time you can get hurt right yeah. and if you don't do movements you can get hurt so what happens is that you should move uh my thing now is i see i call what's 4m motion which means move more of yourself more often more ways and more environments i'm not telling you how to move or what to do I'm just giving you the parameters. And that sounds a lot like just saying the word play, which is what it is. And I oh, found that people do. would have so much anxiety with me teaching them to move that, oh my God, I mean, if your pelvis is at 15 degrees and not 20, it's wrong. 
and I need them to be able to become empowered to feel comfortable moving when I'm not there. So now what I do is I have you move and put your pelvis in every single damn angle you can possibly conceive of mm-hmm. and be and need to be okay with it, right? And play was really important to me because one of the things that uh, they're finding with pain science is that the, the fear of uh, threat it is something that can manifest as stiffness or tightness in the body or pain. So pain is a response to a perceived threat, which means it doesn't have to be real or not. It can be imagined. And uh, one of the things that your, your body is always usually in a state of looking out for what's going to get me and, you know, make sure that I'm not dead, that I'm okay. So we need safety. We need a background of safety when, when we move, right? So we can, we can move with confidence. And I found from looking at neuroscience is that the reason that a play works so great is because you're moving, but you also have this built-in background of safety with it because it's play. So you're moving, but you're not really paying attention to how you're moving. You're just interacting with something uh, or someone and you just move, you move without thinking. So I tell people don't think, just feel. Yeah. With uh, the way we design movement games, we talk about the, the five S's and four of them are the most important for what we're talking about here, but you have to have safety. That's the, mm-hmm. the first parameter. Um, and then you need success, right? There has to be a way within the game that makes you feel like you're, you're gaining something. Right. Uh, you can play a game that's safe, but if you're constantly getting beat, it won't be engaging over the long run. Psychology right there. Yeah. Yeah. And you need struggle, right? If there's nothing that you're pushing against, no chance to grow, it's not going to be engaging. Um, and then in order to achieve those things, it has to be scalable, right? So good games have this ability to, to match themselves to the level of the participants. So that, that element of safety is so key. And I think it's interesting because, you know, I, I was listening to one of your interviews and you were talking about the, you know, when you're looking at pain, the top thing on your hierarchy is actually the emotional system. Yeah. Um, you don't even want to talk about that most of the time because people aren't ready to hear it. Um, not until not until you've had enough suffering in your life, then you are. <laughs> but I think this is interesting because this is what I've gotten out of play research and flow state research is the emotional subtext of a effort has an enormous impact on what the output of that effort is right so if i can if i can if i can train you and i give two people the same training environment but have one have a coach who's who's harassing them and beating them down and making them feel like they suck and they're miserable all the time the other has a really emotionally supportive coach and really great training partners it's like it it doesn't matter if they do the same sets and reps they're not going to get the same results yeah, exactly. That's why it comes down to uh, coaching, it, you know, is an art to it. I mean, there's certainly some science to it, but there's an art to it. There's a human being element. People always ask me what role does emotion play in pain or sports performance? And my answer is yes. I mean, it, it plays all of it. It's a, it's a classic. You watch any great sports redeeming success story movie ever made. Most of the time, it's something where they have this mental demon that they need to overcome. And then in the end of the movie, right, they're getting their ass kicked most of the time. They're, they're, they're almost tapped out. And then something flips a switch 
And then the next thing you know, they end up coming through in the end. Meanwhile, they failed so many times in the past, right? You meet the opponent who kicks your ass in the first in the movie, and then you want to come back and beat them in the end. And you've trained all this time, and then you're at the end, and you're getting your ass kicked again, and you realize that maybe it wasn't so much the training. I mean, I mean, it's a part of it, but you had to flip that switch. Mm-hmm. Though any great athlete, they'll tell you the champions are made from the neck up in many ways, from how your brain functions from a physiological standpoint to make sure it doesn't have inflammation in it, called neuroinflammation, and most people do in this world, but also your, your thought process that you have, uh, your viewpoint about yourself um, and the world that you live in. You, know, you can People experience that all the time where I just tell them, have you ever been completely alone and kind of like some of the world is now? Uh, and you've thought about something that's been very stressful for you or the stress that you're in. And can you feel this wave of physiology completely change in your body? And you didn't leave the room. And it happened in a split second. And then you can flip the switch and think of something that was very wonderful or joyous or a thrill in your life that could have happened decades prior. And then this blanket comes over you and you feel completely different. Mm-hmm. That, that was just based on the emotional context of your brain putting this scrapbook together uh, and then you painted a picture, a story for yourself. So you can change the story anytime. That's the most empowering part. And I see people in chronic pain, man. I mean, you don't see me first when you get hurt. You see me when you've been through a lot of stuff and then what's supposed to help you never helped you or it did and it stopped helping you or it made you worse. (laughs) Then you're usually open and receptive to the stuff that I'm going to be going over with you. And, I'll usually never do what somebody else has already done for you because if you needed that, you wouldn't have found me. You would have already been better, (laughs) you know? Uh, So some of the context, honestly, in my world of rehab, um, I tried to bring more of a a playful interaction with people and, and movements to this world of being so serious with what we're doing. And many people thought that I was like, yeah, what kind of doctor is this where you're just having me do these play games? And, but that was just more of the mental thing for them. Um, and then once they started to do it and let this, this guard down as we have as human beings, we're kind of wrapped in this hard shell. And they started to feel better and smile and laugh. And the beautiful thing that I've learned when you do playful movement is that you're not focusing on your pain. You're just focusing on the playful movement or the task at hand. Play usually has some underlying, um, it seems arbitrary, but it's not. Play is not arbitrary at all. It's usually very task-oriented driven. You're just not obsessed with the end goal of the task. You're just involved in the moment that you're in. That's what I like about it. You're just, you're in the moment that you're in and you're not really thinking about what just happened and what's coming next. You just are. And that's a big component to healing. Yeah. For some reason, the thing that pops in my head is, you know, if you ask an evolutionary biologist, why do men play guitar? 
they'll tell you that men play guitar in order to get women, right? Or to Correct, yes. Women, yeah. right? But there's an interesting thing there because some guys know that that's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And some guys love playing guitar. Right. The ones who are very attractive to women are the ones who are loving playing the guitar, not doing it specifically as a performance. Yeah, it comes through. And so there's the authenticity of it comes through. Yeah. So there's this thing about finding those places where that are deeply intrinsically rewarding to you. And that, that means that they have to be, you know, uh, where, where did I come across this word? Autotelic, right? The, they, they are their own goal, right? Play mm -hmm. is autotelic. Um, no, I, was, I believe that was in um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, right? The autotelic uh, life. So when you're, when you're doing things because they have that, it doesn't mean that they're, that because they, they're sufficient within themselves, it doesn't mean that they have all these other, don't have all these other impacts. Um, but you, you get them for free, basically. Yeah, it's like what 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 is your intention of going into anything? Well, well, it will change the outcome of everything. The intention and attention is is huge. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <clears throat> so I wanted to dig into that. One thing I've noticed over the years, you know, I've had a number of friends who've had real problems with chronic pain, and mm -hmm. and and I've you know I've. Like over the course of my training career, I've, uh, let's see, I've had chondromalacia in my knee. I've had eight severe ankle sprains on each ankle. One of them, a high, bad high ankle sprain. Torn my Achilles tendon. I've had a couple back spasms. Uh, torn my rotator cuff. Uh, popped both my collarbones and one of my, so both AC joints and one of my SC joints. <clears throat> um, subluxated my cuboid bone, torn ligaments in both my feet. Um, and I've had some kind of bad back injury where I, you know, uh, had a hyperextension moment when I was doing a really big back, uh, front flip coming down out of a, out of a front flip. And so it's like, I've accumulated lots of potential sources of pain, but I feel like the thing that has, that has allowed me to continue to grow and progress and at 38 be getting better is, is this refusal to sort of conceptualize myself as an injured injured person and i see these people who who they start chasing the pain right where mm -hmm. they're they're obsessed with their pain and always everything is going towards that and they're they're always worried about how something's going to trigger that injury again right um and and to me it's like you know they're sure that there's just there's some I, I have this conversation with people all the time where they're just sure there's something wrong with them biomechanically right and i'm like you've been having this pain for five years, like whatever the original biomechanical thing was, right? The acute injury is almost certainly resolved. Um, but they're like, no, 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 it's, it's gotta be biomechanics. I just have to shift, you know, my gait. I have to change, you know, my, my pelvic tilt. I have to, you know, I, my ribs are too flared and that's why my, my back is hurting. And, and it's so hard for people to, to, to accept this idea that, that um, a lot of that stuff is normal variation. Chasing it's not gonna help necessarily get you there. Yeah. The potential is that what you have is a psychological injury. You have an injury of the perception of yourself. And if that's not resolved, um, 
danger, the pain won't necessarily go away. That's my perception. And it's so hard for people to do that. I don't know what, what is it that makes it so hard for people to accept the idea that a psychological injury can be just as real as the physical injury. And that's where you might be. It's almost like I can't fault them. It's the, the social environment that we were raised in. And that's pretty much the mech, the, what you were taught. And that's even what medicine has taught for so long. It's the, the old uh, discard type of you touch the fire and then the fire sends the pain signal up and I have the damage and then I perceive my pain type thing. And then that's a model that's still taught today, actually. And uh, um, it's there, but they're finding now that pain is not an input signal. Pain is an output signal. Yeah. And then nothing changes your output signal more than how you choose to interpret what goes in, what goes out, is actually not what goes in. What goes out is your interpretation of just what went in, <laughs> right? So it's really under your control, the master of your control. So it's just that you don't know what you don't know. And you have these environments where you're fed opioids and braces and interventions and surgeries and they're supposed to get better, but there's countless studies showing that they actually went in and so one case study was quite fascinating people had chronic knee pain and that group that they actually did the surgery to then it had a group where they didn't do any of the surgery to them at all they just made it look like it right and then they came out and then there was z zero difference between the people that had the surgery yeah. and those that didn't they just thought they were better because somebody did something to the body part mm -hmm. and, and then that's when there's blue pill red pill stuff so i can't fault them for it honestly it's really hard to wrap your mind around it especially when you're the one suffering mm -hmm. i've been there for sure but when you look at the science there's no correlation between the level of pain or extent of pain that somebody has and the amount of damage done to a body part mm -hmm. somewhere at all because so many people are walking around that are really messed up on x-rays or ultrasounds or MRIs and you tell them that and they're like, oh, well, thanks for letting me know. I don't feel anything, I'm good. And then there's some people that can't move and then you can't find anything on the MRI and they just can't grasp it when they go. And uh, interesting, I got into this work um, because I started to see a lot of chronic pain patients and autoimmune type patients as well, they usually will start to develop autoimmune type symptoms where the body begins to turn on itself after a, a cataclysmic, very high threshold emotional event usually kicks off chronic pain. But you're going to see a lot more of a spike in that because of what's going on in the world today with the amount of stress that we're under. A lot of autoimmune disorders will manifest or get uh, recycle back and get reactivated or some chronic pain stuff may irritate people more. And I actually was one of those people in the beginning that discounted the role of emotion and pain. I laughed it off to be completely honest with you because I wasn't ready to see it yet. I just didn't have the lens yet. So I know what it's like because I'm a human being as well. And it's only when I was really, really sick and near death's bed where medicine tried to help me and damn near killed me or I had really severe low back pain that nothing was really helping me, that I started to get into the emotional-based work and deal with my concept of 
body parts and pain and stuff like that. And some of the, one of the first individuals I came across was, I was listening to Howard Stern one day and Howard Stern talked about his chronic low back pain. And he mentioned a guy named Dr. John Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. And he was one of the early pioneers of back pain, not having to do with biomechanical issues if it's chronic, that is completely emotional. And I was like, it's good enough for Stern, man. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I read the book. And he even says there, there's going to be resistance to this <laughs> for people. Um, and uh, But it made sense when I started to go after it. It takes a lot of work. And he, he had a term in there that I use all the time now when I teach. It's called uh, TMS, Tension Myoneural Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Tension Myoneural Syndrome basically means this. Tension means tension. Yeah. Myo means muscle. Neuro means nerve. So if you have excess stress and tension in your life, usually from your thought process, right? When you think a certain way, you get stress, tight, and tension. It can also happen from repetitive motion, right? Or, or not doing movement. But it's, it's mostly thought driven from stress that excess tension decreases blood flow and oxygenation to tissue, and then muscles start to perish, and then nerves begin to perish. And then you can have a biomechanical component from that, but it's because of the tension that you're actually under from your thought process. So if you can decrease your thought process, you can change your physiology. So how you think changes your biology. They call it psychoneuroimmunology. Psycho, thoughts, neuroimmunology. How you think affects your nervous system and your immune system. It's still a relatively new field, but it's coming around. But it's integrating all of the systems together. And I started to practice the techniques. It didn't have, one of the things that's frustrating for people is they're looking for a quick fix. Like if I take a pill, my pain goes away. They want that to happen with this work too. It takes a while. It, it takes some effort and time to, to, to do that. And then I started to look at the brain and uh, look at movement and how much of our brain is actually dedicated to what we think that we're doing. And so when we, when we think about moving, the only there's only 10% of your brain that's devoted to voluntary movement, right? The other 90% is reflexive, mm-hmm. which means it automatically happens. You don't have to think about it. And that's the reflexive stabilization survival one. That's the one that kicks in to keep you alive, not the one that you're thinking about. Yeah. And then that led me into understanding the stress response because the stress response affects that 90%. That, that primal brain. So decreasing stress, I tell people, is the number one way that you can decrease chronic pain and um, chronic disease in, in your life. But it's such a big buzzword now, just decrease stress. First of all, what the hell does that mean, right? But then they just discount it like that because, yeah, well, I've already heard that. And I'm like, okay, but what are you doing about it kind of thing? But if you can decrease that, you actually affect 90% of your brain. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that's why play is so great. And the movement is so great of just going out and climbing something is so great because you're decreasing stress when you do that. Yeah. So that's why I look, I look at it as, dude, we're decreasing stress when you're putting these in the movement patterns. And it cycles back to what I told you before. So I've got somebody in pain. And first of all, I'm probably going to give them way too many corrective exercises at one time. Mm-hmm. They're already under stress. They're going to get tense and tight because they're worried about they're doing it wrong. And I'm over cueing them and they're stressing out already. So I was actually making people worse by the program that I was putting them under. But I had to step outside of that because just I'm having some people play with a damn balloon or I take a stick 
and I say, don't let me touch you with the stick. And then they're moving around and they're not paying attention to their shoulder or their back. They're just paying attention to the stick and don't let the stick. And they're playing and it's like, it's just, it doesn't look like it's serious, the therapy work that I'm doing, but it actually really is. Yeah. And I read a quote once from somebody that stuck with me that says, there's zero correlation between appearing to be serious and actually being good at what you do. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so great. And I, you know what? I just go by the person that's in front of me. If I can get my person in pain to crack a smile or, or do a laugh, that's a, that's a checkbox. When you understand neurology, that's a checkbox in the 90% box that affects how you move. Not the 10%. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's right up. It's right in line with what we do, right? Like one of our challenges that we ask people all the time, right? We warm them up at our seminars and we warm them up with games. We warm them up with ball games specifically a lot of the time. Yeah. And then some like partnering games. Uh, and at the end of it, everybody's smiling everybody's sweating they've been through big ranges of motion you know um and and they've laughed and and so we always say oh, okay you know we ask them did that happen for you and they always say yes and and then we say well, well how often do you address that in your warm-up right if you think about a warm-up <laughs> is a warm-up like are you treating your body as like literally just a machine that you need to increase the temperature of or are you addressing the activation of the emotional and cognitive as well as the physical to achieve a ready state to engage in high intensity, you know, really effective, you know, tapping into flow state movement. Um, so yeah, absolutely makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always, most people have heard this and they probably know the answer. If I ask the people who are listening, what's the best medicine? After. See, you already know it. Yeah. You already know what it is. And that goes back to I'm not discounting the need for medical or therapeutic interventions, right? I mean, I, I have to keep it in context. Listen, if your arm's hanging off, you're not going to come play a ball with me. You're going to put your arm back on. Yeah. But when your arm's back on, I'm going to tell you there's a pretty safe bet you might have some chronic pain related to that the way they put it back on, the amount of trauma that was done, and not to mention the amount of emotional connection you're gonna have to that trauma, mm -hmm. your arm hanging off. And I need to be able to put that in context for you. So you'll have that world that's gonna put your arm on, but then later you're gonna to need to come in, they ultimately need to come into your world because one of the things that gets people out of pain is one, just getting really strong, yeah. And then people ask me, well, what is your definition of strength? And mine is this, being able to control your own body mass in all different situations. That's true strength. And then that's play. Like, I, I need you to be able to climb. I'm going to tell you this, I got people that can lift 500 pounds off the floor. There's no way they could climb a tree. No yeah. way in living hell they can climb a tree. But they can pull it off the floor. And I said, man, imagine if you climbed a tree, how much you could pull off that floor. <laughs> So let's talk about climbing for a second. I, I have this thing about, you know, there's, there's all this research that shows that crawling has these very interesting impacts on tons of different systems, right? It's a pretty novel thing in the training world to really have all these crawls. Yeah. 
And I, I think that's great. But I also think it's like the reason that crawling in particular may be getting picked up is because we live in this cage of flat ground and flat walls, right? So it's like, that's the world that we can see and crawling's available there. Mm-hmm. But if you think about, you know, cross lateral control and patterning and complex movement orientation and moving your body through different planes of motion, uh, think about climbing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just, I, I think that, that if, if the research starts going there, starts looking at it, you'll find that if you want to wire a human up to move well and to be, you know, well integrated between all these systems, you're going to find that that climbing is going to have this enormous impact because from an evolutionary perspective, that was our primary mode of locomotion for possibly like 90 million years. They think that primates started specializing in trees maybe 90 million years ago before the dinosaurs went extinct. And then, you know, we came down and became terrestrial, I don't know, five million years ago. So it's a, it's deep, deep in our heritage. So I'm curious what your perspective is on, on climbing and how you're looking at it neurologically and like, like what might we find if we dug into this? Oh, I think it's fascinating. I think honestly, it's one of my favorite forms of uh, keeping you really strong and resilient Mm -hmm. and hashtag monster honestly, and it's a great form of rehabilitation, but there's a lot to it, right? There's different forms of climbing, first of all, and uh, it's like anything else. You have to work up to it, and so I look at crawling as a form of climbing. Your load is different, right, but that's start to where you get some of your patterning to be able to reach up with one arm in extension and have another one in flexion, and the same thing with the legs. So it's like a cross-body yeah. pattern. You have these fundamental neurological patterns that manifest usually as human gait. That's yeah. opposite side, opposite body. And, but you do it on the ground in an environment where you're very stable, that you have a lot more of your body in contact with the earth. But it takes an immense amount of strength to move your own body mass on the floor. I mean, if anybody listening has done stuff like uh, Gymnastica Natural or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Animal Flow or Budokan or anything like that, you know it's not easy, man. And plus, I get people on the ground and I have them just do a fundamental rolling pattern, roll from your back, roll to your stomach, and don't use momentum. And most people can't move at all. They're just stuck because their body just forgot how to move, honestly. So I'll start you there. But then when you start to climb something as well, you're, you're tying in immediate reflexive core stabilization, which means you don't have to think about turning on your transverse abdominis mm. at all. Because when you grab something and you reach for something, that's reflexively going to radiate through your whole body. And you're going to be using your hands, which are neurologically driven into your brain. Your hands represent a huge amount of sensory data to your head, an enormous amount. So the very act of gripping something is a sensory turbo nitro to your head. And many people have weak hands. Yep. And if you can strengthen up your hands, holy cow, is this crazy? But when I did the kind, my shoulder feels so much damn better. No, it makes complete sense because you had weak ass hands. Yeah. That grip that we need to go, the oppositional grip that's uniquely human. So you feel a lot of stuff with your hand. Then you use your feet at the same time and you're gonna use muscles in your feet you never knew you had. 
in order to grip onto something. So it automatically works the muscles of your foot. And then if I combine hand with foot, then I'm getting this whole full body system together. And then we know that what sits in the middle is gonna have this reaction to it this way. And then here's what I love about climbing as well, because one, you're gonna get stabilization somewhere, because if you don't have it somewhere and you're getting it from the wrong spot, yeah. you're gonna know quick, fast, and hurry, because you're gonna fatigue really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're gonna fall. <laughs> But that's also where, in my world, uh, you have to be careful. There's an underlying threat response that goes with climbing for the fear of falling, yeah. which I think is kind of innate in everyone. But you, um, you also need to keep that in mind of what you're having someone climb because you know perception makes a difference. A great example is that I can have you walk across a two-by-four on the ground and you feel great because it's on the ground. But if I put it two feet off the ground, the same two by four, you're very scared. And so I have to keep this, depending on the individual that I'm working with, um, climbing. So one of the things that I teach people, even the elderly people, is I have them go down to the ground and get back up again a lot of different ways. And sometimes I'll say, I want to go down to the ground and you just use something that you can hold on to and climb up with. So it's a form of climbing, it's a regress form of climbing, but you have to keep it in contact with the person that you're working in. And then here's the thing that I love about climbing is one of the reasons that it works so well is because I know 99.9% .9 of humans don't do any form of it now. Yeah, so sad. So I mean, uh, one thing that popped into my head that, that I thought it, about a lot is, you know, I have three young children. I have a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. So I've watched all of them develop. And <laughs> developmentally, um, they start with rolling, right? Well, it's flexion, extension, and then rolling. Yeah. And then crawling, right? Or, or basing and then crawling. Um, but then it's climbing. It's climbing before it's walking. Because the first thing that they start doing is pulling themselves up things. Right to get to an upright torso and then moving themselves across things. And this is actually also the evolutionary pattern because the origin of, of the upright torso in mammals and primates comes from climbing, right? Because you right. have an animal that moves around the ground on all fours and then it basically takes that motion and learns to traction, grab with the hands and go up something. Yeah. And of course, you know, the shoulder develops when we, when we learn to hang from Hang, something. right. So all those things are, are both developmentally and evolutionarily, there's a pattern of, develop, of development, right? And if you miss it, you're missing a huge piece. I think of this as the way that I tend to think of, uh, of um, kind of traditional sport culture is, or, or not for sport culture, but exercise culture, is it's kind of like chemists who've never eaten food trying to figure out diet, right? Right, right. Right. Yeah. And they're like isolating molecules and they're like, oh, that'd probably be good for people. Let's put it together with this thing. Right. But they haven't actually gone out and just had a steak. They've never had a steak. They don't need to eat. Right. Um, and for me, the steak, the, you know, the potatoes is climb, run, jump. It's, it's, these are the whole food movements. And the more that they replicate the kind of stuff that we had in our evolutionary environment, the more like the whole, the more whole it is. So climbing, um, you know, doing a pull-up is a climbing exercise. Yeah. It's a climbing exercise 
very low variability, very low levels of, you know, proprioceptive engagement, you know, very few force vectors moving through the body. Um, and then, you know, something like a, like a, a ladder on a wall. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen um, fit wall. Yeah. Like, okay. So that's, that's like one level of complexity higher. And then you could have like a flat rock climbing wall and then a more complex one. And then you have like moving between multiple trunk trees where you're orienting towards everything in the space around you, right? Where your, your movement space um, is not this anymore. It's everything, right? You have yeah. to orient here. And that to me is, is going to be the best food for your brain. Yeah, and it's, it's I love because when you're climbing, this is the only thing you got. You, it's the only thing you're thinking of. You're yep. not thinking of what happened yesterday. Or, Did I put that in the oven? I can't remember. If I put that in the oven. You're probably not thinking about that. You're thinking about your surroundings and your environment, and you're taking in a lot of different things at the same time. But you're very in the moment, and most people typically don't feel a lot of things that they would normally feel, quote unquote, that hurts, because they they're they're attention has changed and then that safety component comes back to i it was interesting i watched something where they did a context of somebody who say you want to learn how to do like a flip yeah if you if you were learning how to do a flip and you had a hard floor you'd probably be really scared to do a flip <laughs> you wouldn't explore yeah. but they put all these 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 mesh little foam things in the pit yeah yeah that's and then when you know that you're going to be okay if you don't land right then you just let yourself go you have this sort of freedom and it's a it's a great representation of an analogy of how when you can decrease the threat response tension and exploration begins to improve mm -hmm. when you do that but i've also found it as interesting with play is one of the things that's most stressful for a human being is they don't want to look silly and sometimes you know, you can have these great ideas, but I wouldn't necessarily have my client begin to do it like out on the gym floor and other people because you have that social pressure, social stress, and you think everybody's looking at me of what this guy, person is doing and whether they're looking stupid when they do it. Because nobody ultimately wants to look stupid. And then I'll bring them in a, a, an environment where it's just them and me. Uh, and it's a vastly different kind of experience. So there's a lot of things that go into the context of play than just starting to play yep. because it's, it's individual driven. And that's why when you have your groups and your trainings, you probably see a transformation in the humans that are with you from the first day to the end, right? Massive. Um, it's... <laughs> It's kind of, for me, this is a funny personal story because I think that uh, I have, I'm, I'm very low in anxiety naturally, right? Like uh, on a big five personality test, I test at like the one percentile for negative emotion. So I'm, I'm quite tolerant of, uh, of, of other people's criticisms and I don't, you know, I just don't get a big emotional reaction to it. I'm also very high in disagreeability, right? So if other people just because other people are into it doesn't mean that I'm going to go along a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I came out of parkour, right. I had a martial arts background, gymnastics background, then went into parkour. Um, and then, you know, eventually it was like, I really wanted to take it into nature and to expand the scope. 
And I had to walk away completely from the community because there were, just weren't people who were ready to go with me. And so I was training on my own alone for two years in the woods and I was very happy, right? Um, you know, uh, there was certainly loneliness from, from l losing the community that I'd been in. Um, but the training was absolutely fantastic. Like every time I was out there, I was absolutely joy, like incredible flow states. And then I, I started teaching, I had been teaching these events, right? And over time, it went from like three days to five days to seven days to eight days. And, and I would always ask the people at the end of the seminar, like, what was the most meaningful thing for you? And they would tell me, and I would always like be waiting for them to say, oh, it was that jump that I did, or it was learning this movement thing. And it was never that. And the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is always the people, right? Mm. It was how connected I felt. It was the people that I was with, it was this feeling of, you know, it, it has to do with this tribal aspect of us. And I, I've come to realize that um, the psychology of people who are early adopters of parkour is quite unique. And, um, and what, what holds a lot of people back, I think there's a couple things, but a lot of it is this being silly in public, right? Parkour is a, is a practice where in order to get started, you have to go look like a fool in a public place. Mm -hmm. And so it's been predominantly adopted by teenage males because they're the group of people who are most willing to look foolish. And also generally the people who can progress from the foolish stage to the elegant stage relatively rapidly. Um, but I've known so many people who, you know, who've come into it, who've had that experience of just the movement's fun and intriguing. And if I'm in the right social environment, it's great. But if I have to go out on my own and other people are going to look at me, I can't do it. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's too bad because it, the way that parkour has been popularized now, it, especially Instagram, it's so much seen as, as just risk taking. But I think that at its root parkour is, there's something happening there that is like the biggest revolution in, in, in understanding how a human being can move and what we're capable of and how that can impact you everywhere else. Um, but it's kind of the, the barrier to entry is very hard for other people to even start paying attention to it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. That's why I like when you talked about your initial S's, Yeah, you have to allow that, that win, that success, right? And then I, I think it was something where it was fascinating. I think it was Jordan Peterson who wrote the book, The 12 Rules for Life or something. And he, he talked about a study. It was, I think it was with mice, but it was rats. something where rats. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the big rat has to allow the smaller rat to win every once in a while. Otherwise, the small rat just doesn't want to play anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I mean, if it's hardwired in a rat, mm -hmm. you, it, you know it's going to be the same way for humans. Otherwise, you're going to check out. I don't want to play with you because I'm never win. I don't have a chance. Yeah, I first came across that idea in a Stuart Brown's work. Do you follow Stuart Brown? Yes, of course. Yeah, great book, right? Yeah, his book Play. So he talks about uh, yeah, Pangsep's rats as well. I don't think he mentions Pangsep's name though. Um, so I, I encountered it from Brown. And then, uh, then I ran into Jordan Peterson, very influenced by his work, and he has a really wonderful um, uh, article, like a primary source article on 
the role of rough and tumble play in the control of aggression. Mm -hmm. That's really worth people looking into. Agreed. Um, and then, uh, and then he, you know, he turned me on to Yakupengsep, and I've gone and read. I have effective neuro neurobiology on my, um, or effective neurology on my bookshelf as well. Yeah. Really, uh -huh. that, that chapter on the roughhousing very closely. So that's been a huge influence on the way that we think about this. So we're, you know, I think play research um, and the constraints led, you know, ecological dynamics perspective bringing these things into the martial arts and parkour and, and connecting them um, is this, it, it's this incredibly rich place for a synthesis that really gives us a new view into how we look at physical culture. And I was actually just talking to Kelly Sturette. Um, and so after our interview, I was talking about this Yak Pangsep thing because um, what I, what I think that we've done is we've actually, we've operantly conditioned several generations of human beings um, to dislike, to be scared of, and to be threatened by physical activity. Yeah. Because kids prior to, I don't know, prior to basically the 1980s, right? It started in the 80s, but got worse and worse and worse through the 90s and the aughts and now. Um, they, they mostly organized their own play. And kids negotiate play and self-handicap in order to retain playmates. And they learn to do this process that, that keeps play going. So that's great. And they learn a tremendous amount from that. But we took away more and more of that. We got scared that they were going to get taken by abductors. And then, you know, that we need to get them into Harvard. And more. there was all these things that slowly eroded unstructured play but we need them to exercise. And so at the same time, we had so much academic focus that we didn't even want PE. So everything got funneled into the team sport world, right? The way that you get your kid exercise is you sign them up for youth soccer when they're five years old. Soccer is a great game. Football's a great game. Baseball's a great game. All these games are great. For those kids, they're great if the kid, especially when the kid gets to organize it themselves. Right. But the problem is that once you have a professionalized, winning oriented, adult structured imposition of these games on kids, what's happening is that you, the kids are no longer able to regulate the game so that the less physically capable kids at any stage of development have enough success to stay interested. Right. And so some percentage of the kids in first grade or kindergarten basically learn the lesson that engaging in physical activity is punishing and they are socially shamed for not being physically competent. Yeah. And it's one of the primary ways that you learn to socialize with yeah. another human being, right? And to know that uh, give and take for someone and, uh, Plus, you have that fear of, well, it's just not fair. Well, what, well that's how you learn what, what fair, unfair actually means, right? And then the, that, that dynamic of that's what life is, right? And then I remember, uh, because now they're, I, th I think that the playgrounds, they're taken away. And then I think I read somewhere that I, I couldn't even believe when I heard it, that they outlawed the game of tag. Yeah. That was my my jaw dropped to the ground because I'm like, oh, really? 
that's like one of the best games you could ever play for your whole body. <laughs> the fundamental games, right? Like kids have to roughhouse and they have to play tag and they have to explore the environment. Talk about ex- learning to accelerate and decelerate and shift and move because most pe- most athletes get hurt because they can't decelerate. They can't slow down and serpentine and jag and weave. And, uh, you know, you have that variability of you just don't know when they're coming or where they're going to try to touch you and stuff like that. And, and then we're so litigious and worry about kids getting hurt. And But that's taking away from your ability to integrate yourself into a society and kind of naturally see where you land. And the dirty little secret is that if you want to excel at those individual sports like baseball or basketball, it's really not by playing more of that sport. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? You I mean, you, that's practicing your skill set, but doesn't mean you're a good mover either uh, because most of them are not good movers. So if you can learn to do movement, I think it was Ido Portal. You probably know how many people do. He said, we're, we're human beings first, we're movers second, mm-hmm. and we're specialists third. And that stuck with me because you can be a much better specialist if you're a better mover. And that's why moving is in the middle because if you can become a better mover, in my opinion, that'll make you a better human. Yeah. I mean, I think it can, it doesn't always. So this is one of the things that uh, I'm really interested in with, with like interacting with the embodiment community and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. You have, um, so take a jump in parkour, right? A jump can be an opportunity to confront fear and to learn something about courage that you can, that you can then, you can then generalize to the rest of your life. But it can also be a place where once you've developed confidence, you can go back and say, I'm okay, I'm courageous because I, I do that over here, but I haven't generalized. And it becomes a, it becomes a place to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is true with everything, right? I think that um, that yoga works this way, that meditation works this way, that without an intent to generalize and to recognize that the, that the movement itself, um, you know, it, it's not sufficient. I mean, it is sufficient because it's enjoyable, but if you think you're getting everything out of it, uh, that can be a trap, right? Because you have to see how it's impact, impact the rest of your life. So I think it's important to have that human layer at the top, right? It's like human first. Is this, you know, if you're practicing all the time and you're becoming better and you're this amazing mover and because of that, you're like crabby at everybody around you and you're like super competitive and, you know, like being a a dick to all of your roommates because they're also movers and you want to be better than them. It's like, is this really good for you? Is this really the human, is this really what you'd like to be? But yeah, I think that, um, that's why I like to play so much because I think if you can have that play element to it, I mean, you're, I think that definitely will make you become a, a, a better human towards other people because you're just becoming a better human with yep. yourself. Right. And then um, I, I don't think I've ever seen somebody who specializes in a sport, not improve mm-hmm. by introducing more of a play element into their, into their life. Cause it, it also, 
Um, we need for the people who do this, the sport specific type of training, or you find that people usually like to do exercises or movements that they're good at. They don't like to do things. So if you do yoga all the time, it's probably because you're really good at it or you're genetically built for it. And you're probably not going to go strength train or something. And then you've got the opposite the same way that you need to have that exploration and it makes you much more resilient as a human being to overcome things that will come across your path that's what happened to me it was i remember i started bodybuilding when i was 14 because i was fat i was overweight i was shy i got got picked on a lot and i felt socially inadequate and i just came across arnold schwarzenegger's autobiography and it changed my life and I started to lift to change my life but as many people listening may know I mean you can get caught up in that and then your self-worth becomes locked to your physical appearance and so it's a different rabbit hole and I also look great but I couldn't move great or perform great and I was getting hurt all the time honestly I, I back pain shoulder pain things like that but I just wasn't ready to see it yet I just kept going and um, then a friend of mine exposed me for the first time to uh, Gymnastica Natural from Alvaro Rabato in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And he was a patient of mine. And I, he came and, it, boy, that was one of the most humbling. By the end of that hour, I think it was wiped for a week. It was very humbling of, man, I have zero movement in my hips. And I, I couldn't bring my own body mass down the mat. <laughs> and... It was eye-opening, but I stuck with it and went back into it. I eased more into it after that. And I started to notice some physical changes in my body that I just never expected to see. And I'm 53 years old right now, and I honestly tell people I feel I can move better and feel better than when I was 23 because of of that. And and I'll show some of these movements in my own movement courses or – when I'm teaching and uh, I'll say, okay, here's just a fundamental one I want you to do. And I look around the room and it's astounding how many people just have zero awareness of their body parts in relationship to the world yeah. or the ability to control and stabilize themselves with these movements. And it hit me of how far I've come from, from doing that. And I've had, Honestly, in my lower back, I've had some very severe disc herniations over my life from too many squats and doing dumb things. And if you looked at it from, I know we talked about the biomechanical aspects of pain. This is why it's kind of tied back into it, where I have a really severe posterior pelvic tilt where, you know, I have a flat back, my hips jam forward. I have a straight spine in the back. And I have a disc that virtually is non-existent and herniated it four times. Okay. Um, and I've tried everything you, you can think of to improve the posture. That's more brain related than anything though. And um, doing all these biomechanical things. And then now I used to get pain and discomfort all the time. Now when I move and play and I'm on the ground and I'm turning and holy cow, you mean you can rotate in your lower back? You're not supposed to do that. Like, who says? <laughs> you, you have to rotate in your lower back. I hate to tell you guys this. And then I haven't had an episode of not even an inkling or soreness 
in my lower back in over a decade. Nothing. That's awesome. And that's the only thing that I did different. And I just explore and I move and I'll get on the ground and I'll put myself into a flow state and I'll just move the way that my body wants to move. But the environment that I started to move in made a difference for me, which was going on the ground. And then here's something that really stood out to me. I mean, I used to never be able to do a pull-up. Like I could do lat rows all damn day. I mean, I could pull the weight to me. But if you got me on a bar, I couldn't pull myself up. I mean, I was muscular, but I didn't think I was really strong. And then now, pop on one, I can blast out 10. And I never even tried to do pull-ups. <laughs> it's just that everything kind of synchronized together for me. And I do it every day, all the time. That's awesome. Um, yeah, for some reason, one thing that, that I wanted to mention earlier is I have this idea that the the strength training industry looks at kind of the the big phasic muscles right uh, as the place to start training but if you look developmentally you see children don't put on heavy musculature until relatively late in their development but they can be very strong and it's like the the most important strength then is like the hands the feet and the core so it's like for me, it, it seems to me that the strength should start at the periphery and at the center and then move to connect. And it's like the big power shouldn't be built until you have those, like that safety mechanism of do, do you grip, right? How big does your lat and your bicep and your pec need to be before you can grip well, right? And like how, how powerful can your, your quads and your hamstrings and your, your hips be if your feet can't can't do things on the ground well right if you don't have the ability to to move the feet well like having all that power up above that that just seems like a, a mechanism for injury yeah it's almost like that farmer strong they say that right you never want to wrestle or play with a farmer because you'll lose every time <laughs> they've just got that strength in their hands like a freaking jackhammer man and it's interesting too when you think from a brain perspective i I've studied a lot of people in the world who make people strong. That's their job. And I studied a guy in, in Ireland named Paul McElroy. And he, he makes hellaciously strong people. And he said something that stuck with me. We were teaching together in London once. And the way he said it just resonated. He said, strength isn't built. It's granted to you by your nervous system. There you go. Which means that you'll get really, really strong if your brain will allow you to. Because mm -hmm. that's the gatekeeper. Yeah. And it really ties into what you just said. Now, imagine what your brain actually thinks about allowing you to generate a ton of force from the center out. Mm -hmm. If it knows you've got the inability to control things at the ground with your foot or with whatever implement that you're holding. So then it just does this. It said, Man, I, listen, I'm going to talk like your brain now. Mm -hmm. I said, listen, I'd love to give you all that core power and strength and things that you're looking for, but I can't because you don't have the ability to control it with your hands and your feet. And I'm just watching your back, man. I'm just trying to protect you. So what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna make you a little bit weaker. It's all right, it's coming. And then if you keep doing this strategy without listening to me, I'm gonna send you the ultimate communication tool to get you to stop doing stupid shit. And that's the pain. 
Yeah. Pain, pain, my definition of pain is this. Pain is a request for change. Yeah. And requests, I say requests from who? From you. It's, it's your body telling you, I need you to change something. That usually will be a habit, a behavior, which is how you think and how you move mm -hmm. and all those different things you have to look at. And it doesn't necessarily mean go harder, faster, stronger, longer, because that's unfortunately what we tried to do. We want to force strength. And I'm not saying you can't push yourself to be stronger, but your brain is never going to allow you to push beyond a certain point. If you haven't asked it nicely to uh, grant it to you, and, and that's just a fundamental framework of my program these days, because I found that everything works for someone, but I found the reason that things don't work is because two reasons. One, I'm giving too many things at you at once that can work, but your brain just doesn't know what to do with it yet. Mm -hmm. Or two, uh, I'm giving you things, but I have to shuffle them around and I have to give them to you in a very specific order for it to work well. Yeah. And then that's what the system systems approach is that I look at people. I can just have to flip like two things around. Yeah. And, and then that, that will make all the difference in, in the world. And it's very hard to do for people because people want a protocol for everything. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't give them that. Uh, I ha have to try to teach them the ability to to learn how to think with this thought process so you can find it for the unique human being that's in front of you. And what I like about play is that there's really no protocol for play. There is, I like what you're doing. I really like it because you have like a guideline. You need to have some rules, yeah? You need to have some rules, but within the within the yeah, rules, right. you, ha you, have, you have wiggle room. But you know, you know the parameters, like your S's. I mean, that's your rules. Yeah. Because otherwise, it'd be chaos, right? Yeah. Um. But but you have to have something. But then you can play that has a little bit of give and take to it. But it's back to what you said before. I mean, if you break a rule, there's a repercussion for breaking a rule. <laughs> that's how you learn rules. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.